Good evening. Tonight's New Testament passage is Acts 14, verses 8 through 23. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, having persuaded the crowds. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please join me as we pray? Oh God, I pray that you would open up the eyes of our hearts, that we might know the hope to which you've called us, uh, what are the riches of being part of your people, and the immeasurable power you give to those that believe, according to the working of your great might when you raised Jesus from the dead. Lord, we trust you for these things. In Christ's name, amen. So uh, this past weekend, I was speaking at a retreat up in Boston. And uh, some of you may know that Boston was where, uh, Boston and Cambridge was where Meg and I, my wife Meg and I, were at before we came here near 20 years ago. And um, the retreat was out in New Hampshire. And by the way, snow exists. I saw some snow. It's been years. And I was like, is there snow? Snow is still there. And uh, so I went into Boston, and I decided I was going to stay an extra day and a half. Basically, what turned into sort of like a prayer and thanksgiving walk. And there were two places I was focused on. I know you're thinking, well, it's just like a minister, right? He just doesn't take a vacation. He has to justify it, make it sound spiritual. No, that's not what I'm doing. There was a reason. Um, There were two places I was focused on. One was Harvard and one was Berkeley College of Music. Harvard, because Meg and I started a ministry there for six years, 
And it was a hard ministry, not an easy ministry. And uh, both of those schools have something in common. They're different, very different schools, Berkeley's College of Music. But they have something in common. They tend to be viewed as a place that you really want to get into. You know, that maybe elite students, not the only places, but two places that do. And so uh, there's a tendency when you're walking on those campuses to sort of idolize the people that got in. I felt that way when I was just serving there doing campus ministry, walking around, right? And there's another student. Look at that. They got in. Their name's attached with this place. Or even Berkeley, where I went and graduated. As I walked around, I find myself envying that they have their whole like, musical life ahead of them. They can get so much better, and they got all these different resources. And I say this because, you know, so often we were going from idolizing things and wanting to be idolized, right? <laughs> so much of our lives. And those are just, and I thought about it, it's just really any day you're walking down the street, you know, you're walking down the street and maybe it's someone's outward appearance and their beauty. Or maybe it's a couple that's holding hands and you idolize what appears to be their happiness. Or maybe uh, we idolize the personality that's different than ours. Or we idolize uh, the social connections, the way someone lights up a room, the way they work a party. Or we idolize someone's interesting life story. You know, when you're sitting there going around a table and say, well, tell me about your life story. And you're like, oh, no, please don't make me tell them my life story. Right? I'm not the most interesting man in the world. Or maybe it's skills and idolizing talents or idolizing achievements, idolizing accomplishments. The Grammy Awards are beyond, right? Plenty of time to idolize again. We want to be important to important people, right? We want that important people know our names. And I say this because it's easy to read a passage like this and see the response of the people to this miracle and just kind of go, well, these are sort of superstitious, primitive people given to idolatry. But the truth is, nothing's changed. The idols just look different, right? In our hearts, this temptation to idolize and be idolized. And that's why I feel like this passage offers us such hope. Because of the way we see Paul and Barnabas responding to that situation. That's what I want to look at. And it's not just cut and dry. Because on the one hand, there's reason that we idolize people. Because Psalm 8 says that humankind has been made crowned with glory and honor. Humankind has been crowned with glory and honor, right? Our fellow human beings do things that amaze us. That astound us. The things they build. The catches they make. The courage they have. The bravery. Right? All these different things amaze us. But on the other hand, sin has short-circuited our praise. Right? Because it's supposed to bounce off or go there and work its way somewhere higher. But it doesn't make its way up. 
So as Paul and Barnabas confront this idea of idolatry, we're talking about being one new people. A new people are people that are beginning to get free. They're beginning to recognize the folly of idolatry and the freedom from it. So let's look at those two things together, okay? First of all, the folly. So Paul and Barnabas are in this place called Lystra. And they've been working around missionary journeys, but now they're in more of like a rural, uneducated place that has like lots of uh, idols and cults and things like that. There's a big emphasis. In fact, there was a, a legend in that very town and the one neighboring that uh, once two gods had come in human form, and no one showed them any hospitality except an older couple. And since they did, the older couple, the gods made this older couple priest in the temple of Zeus. So, you know, it may be some of that background is working through the minds of these people when they experience this miracle. And miracles, right, are worthy of awe. I, I mean, if we saw that happen, I mean, not many of us would just probably go, oh, that was interesting, right? We would, we, we, right? You'd know about it. By the time we left church, it would be all over the world. And they respond, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. How often have you longed to hear that about you? Right? You, you must be like a god that's come to earth. You're, you're different. You're special. You're extraordinary. That's what they say. And here we see a picture of folly. And that is uh, the tendency we have uh, to idolize raw displays of achievement and accomplishment. This is a pretty big accomplishment that happens. And their, their, their reflex is to idolize it. Not, not think about the deeper purpose or the word behind it. And it's interesting, you never find Jesus or the apostles doing miracles without words. This is as Paul was speaking. Paul's speaking about the gospel and then inset in that is this miracle. So people don't just bounce off the miracle, but they move somewhere else with it. But the heart of idolatry, it's just the raw thing. The raw accomplishment. I was thinking about a quote from a friend of mine. He actually spoke at one of our retreats, Zach Eswine. Uh, some of you were probably at that retreat. It was a while ago. But Zach w says this thing. In America especially, people are all about wanting to do large, famous things fast. And so he said this quote. Those of you searching for something larger, faster, and more significant who feel that if you could just be somewhere else doing something else as somebody else, then your life would really matter. Jesus has come to confound you. Amen for that. Confound with the good news of the gospel. This is what Jesus did, right? He came to people that were completely out of the spotlight. And he valued them. They looked into the eyes of God and they saw a smile. This great, amazing miracle worker who could still the sea and heal people all day long just hanging out with ordinary folk that don't got much money, that have lots of problems, they feel valued. But then also the reaction of the crowd 
shows another part of the folly. Their, their desire then at that point is to sacrifice, make a sacrifice. They go get these ceremonial garlands. Maybe they were some sort of mark of deity and want to put them on them. And by the way, the text said that they were speaking in their native language, Lyconian. So Paul, Paul and Barnabas like, aren't understanding what's going on, Right? They're like sitting there trying to feel out, and so they, you know, bring these things out, and but then they do understand, I think they're sacrificing to us. And maybe they could understand Zeus, Hermes, Zeus, Hermes, right? And, and what happens is, um, thankfully, they were actually with some people that wouldn't let them idolize them. But you know, when you idolize someone or something, you're very prone to be exploited, Right? to be made vulnerable. Maybe it's uh, someone exploiting your work-life balance when we idolize our job or to exploit the other important calls we have in our lives, like to love the people in our neighborhood or love the people in our family. Or maybe they'll exploit, exploit our emotional health. Might be our literal bodies. When we idolize things, it puts us in a position where we're vulnerable. I think one of the questions that I was given years ago to contemplate, to help us sort of get it, you know, what are, recognize, identify these things is, is uh, a couple questions. Who are you most afraid of disappointing? Um, who are you most afraid that you'll lose their approval? Who requires the most loyalty from you? They sort of demand it. Now, thankfully, as I said, Paul and Barnabas refuse to be idolized. And once they get past the language bearer, they rush into the crowd, and the Greek word says they respond, they tear their clothes, which is a sign of grief and horror that this is happening. You know, a little different than, no, you know, it's, you don't need to praise. Thanks, you know. It, it was like grief and horror, right? In a loud voice, they protest and they say, we are also men like you. They refuse the adulation and as they do, they dignify the people. They honor the people. So I was thinking about some interactions I've had in two areas of my life, ministry and music, with really gifted and talented people and how they wouldn't let me flatter them. They wouldn't let me idolize them. In fact, they, they just sort of like when I met them, one was Tim Keller, is Tim Keller. Any time I've spent with him, he's just talking to me like I'm a peer. Yeah, fellow pastor. Jaron Bars. I think I've told you this story before. I was coming to D.C., and uh, just planning the church, feeling like really insecure. And here we are on this Disney island out in the Bahamas. I can't, I don't have time to explain that, okay? <laughs> but, but that setting with this man was just the weirdest thing in the world. And, uh, and I just said, finally, in my insecure, I just said, Jerem, if you were in D.C., what would you preach? And he looked at me and said, I would never presume to tell you that. You're called there, not me. Right? 
They wouldn't let me idolize them. That is a sign that someone is loving you and honoring you. Do you have people in your life, leaders in your life, where they won't let you idolize them? Another was on the music side. Uh, This was several years ago, several years ago, and I went to hear this jazz group in town. I think it was at Dukem uh, Ethiopian restaurant. They used to have a jazz night there. And uh, it was a great group, but it's the first time there was a steel drum player. And he was like out of this world. I mean, I've heard steel drum, you know, know, you're getting, you're walking around. But this was like, he's playing lines that are unbelievable. And I I think I was there with Russ Whitfield, and we're just like, whoa, you know. And so afterward, when there's a break, I I come up to him, I'm like, and he just goes, he goes, hi, I'm Victor, what's your name? (laughs) Human. Hugh Human. You know, he's just like trying to like, Glenn. Or even on this recent trip, I I got a chance to meet my online guitar teacher. And she's the assistant chair. And, uh, you know, we both were at Berkeley at the same time. The only difference is a lot of people know about her. Okay? (laughs) She's extraordinary. Amazing. But from the very first time we interacted, she started talking to me like I was one of her classmates. She just won't let me to kind of idolize her. Well, Paul and Barnabas do this. And where did they learn that? Well, they learned that from Jesus, who really was God who came to us in human form, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by coming obedient to the point, even death on a cross. Now, take that in your mind and compare it to something we're told in chapter 12 about Herod. Because our passage and that passage have a parallel. Listen to this. This is one of the King Herods. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to the Lord. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. That's a contrast, right? Here you have the God-man who did not kick it, but here you have someone going, bring it on. You know, bring it on. So, uh, Paul and Barnabas make this move and say, we're not going to do this. And I, before we move to the last point, I, I want you to see that um, it costs them. If you are willing to love someone enough to confront them about their idols, it may cost you. It cost Paul almost his life, right? He's almost killed. And why is that? Because we build worlds around our idols, right? Maybe it's your professional world. You know, maybe it's your, um, oh, I don't know, your relationship world. But whatever idols we have, idols of accomplishment, of achievement, of approval, idols of comfort, idols of, there's, right, so many things, and our worlds get built around them, and when someone begins to confront those idols, it begins to topsy-turvy our world. And so we're told, well, this crowd turns to them in part because they're incited by some opponents of Paul and Barnabas, but also... 
Paul begins to dismantle their world by challenging their idols. Jesus did the same thing with the religious leaders. They enjoyed authority. They enjoyed the best seats. They enjoyed the the praise and the status of people. They even had money attached to it. And when Jesus began to get at that stuff, it was shaking their world. And this will happen to us too, as God lovingly begins to kind of deal with our idols, we're going to feel unsteady, but that's okay, right? He has, to, he has to shake the house so it can stand. But for those that continue to reject him, it, the house just comes down. So, if we love one another enough, which we must, there may be some cost. But let's talk about the freedom to close it out. So, uh, they don't just say, we're, not, we're, not, we're, we're men like you, but they, they bring good news. And here's the good news. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. He did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Uh, two things we see here that they do. One... Paul says, turn from these, the Greek word means vain, empty, powerless, ineffective things, worthless things. Now, to modern ears, that sounds rude and offensive because, right, we're just supposed to flat out, um, there's, there's a way to respect people's dignity and respect their culture, but it, it doesn't mean that every culture doesn't have idols to be critiqued, Right? The modern mind is sort of like, no, we don't go there. But Paul had to dare to go there because they were enslaved to empty things. There was a holy jealousy for the dignity and honor of these people. Psalm 115 says about idols, those who make them become like them. And we have words for this, right? Workaholic, alcoholic, shopaholic. If we see someone, when we see someone we love in the clutches of maybe it's their whole life is racked by wanting to have approval, racked by their reputation, when we see that stuff, does not our heart go out and long to see them free? We must. People in our city, one another. And so it's turned from worthless things. But, you know, just the Bible, the Bible never just says uh, put off without saying put on, right? The Bible, if your idea of what it means to live the Christian life is just don't do, don't do, don't do, don't do. Put off, put off, put off, put off these bad things. And not put on, put on, put on, put on something much better. And that's what he's doing here. Turn to the living God. And this not only means God is life, he is in himself. As it says of Jesus, God, man, he was, he was life itself in the light of men. But it's also the life he gives. Listen to this psalm. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast 
on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life. The fountain of life. And so Paul means to connect this. He says, turn to the living God. I want you to think about the things that bring you satisfaction and that make you glad. The rains you receive, the fruitful seasons. These are a witness that God has been doing good to you. I wonder how many people today, breaking the weather, again, the sun, you know, sun comes out. Did we go... God is witnessing of his goodness to me right now. This is what Paul is saying. And as he's trying to awake gratitude in them, he's equipping them with a blade to cut themselves free. Because the Bible says in the book of Romans that actually idolatry grows in the dark soil of thanklessness, ingratitude. Human beings, having refused to give thanks to God, then began to idolize. It makes sense, right? I mean, if, if you're not, if you don't see this vision of who he's made you to be, if you don't see you've been crowned with glory and honor, if you don't see the way he's lit up the world this way, I mean, we'll just, we're fixated on trinkets, and so thankfulness becomes a really important diagnostic question. You know, one, am I a thankful person? Or do I move throughout my days basically expecting life to go a certain way and complaining when it doesn't? But the second part is, is my thankfulness only earthly? Is it only earthly thankfulness? The short circuit. Like any other gift... Like any other gift, a person has left it behind. Not many people would find a gift on their front porch and go, I wonder if the universe left this. Right? We'd think, well, I think a person left this. So we looked at the gifts of the world, the sun, the rain, the sun, and instead of going, I, I think this is just the universe, we would instead say, I, I think a person has been kind to me. God means gratitude to be like the breadcrumbs that lead us to his greatest gift, which is the giving of his son, the giving of Jesus, right? The one whose life get extinguished under our sin and judgment for our thanklessness, but he can't be held down. Paul says of the Thessalonians, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, the way, the truth, the life, abundant life, the resurrected one. And do you see what it is? He is the rain. He's the water. He's the light. He's the food from heaven. He's the bread from heaven. He's the water for the thirsty. He is the one that God is feeding you. He's the joy of the harvest. He is the jubilee. He is the light and the way and the truth. He is it. God has given himself to you. This is all about that. It's all about that. What a wonderful, beautiful place God made a habitat so he could give himself to you. And it's by that point, you know, gifts turn from being gods to just being good gifts. 
And we think, man, oh man, he loved me so much he came in the flesh and he, he gave himself for me. Like for me, by name. He gave himself for me. This is the Christian gospel. No more is this thing in my hand is a lie. But this thing in my hand is it's the son of God. <laughs> I love uh, that confession, Andrew Ledison, because um, we don't get free alone. We together, as we live in community here, help one another, right? And this is what we do. Like, you know, we're in a community group. We're in some group, and we're like, pray for me, man. These are the idols I struggle with. Help, help, help righteousness and grace look more beautiful than sin in the idols of my life. And then as God does that, we're told in the book of Ephesians, we're being renewed after the image of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is something C.S. Lewis got after. I'll close with his quote. And he uses the word gods and goddesses, but you know what he's after is what we're talking about. He says, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinies. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you for setting your people free. Lord, you know that we have idols in our hearts, folly in our hearts. But you have given us your spirit. I pray that anybody and everyone in this room would receive the Son and be free. Would you help us, Lord, to be one new people? In Christ's name, amen.